So we've been having like a thousand trials with these things. We think we might have figured it out. And we're, so here comes the big test. <gasps> Look at that. Eric Dush to the rescue. <laughs> Very good. So our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um, and that's, that's the whole chunk. We're not going to read every verse out of there, but we will be uh, tackling a great number of those verses. Um, so if you would find that in your Bible. For those of you who are um, kind of have old home week this week, several visitors and people from the past, so we want to welcome everybody that is, uh, that is here this morning. If you weren't here last week, we've begun a new series. We're calling it... Uh, since this works now, right? Kings. We're going through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, which is a huge block of text. And so we'll be moving sort of slowly through this and taking a few breaks. We talked last week about the birth of Samuel, the miraculous birth of Samuel, uh, the faithfulness of his mother Hannah and his father Elkanah. This week we're going to turn um, toward Eli in his household as we see a replacement of, of Eli's house with Samuel's house. Immediately, though, I I want to bring up an important point that really has come out in our men's Bible study, but I I think is really something that is worth sharing with you this morning. And that is, I think when we come to the Bible, we often ask uh, the wrong question. We'll come to the Bible and say, well, what is this going to teach me about my life? Or what does this teach me about God's will for me? Or what does this teach me about right or wrong? Or how do I get my kids to finally behave and stop being you know, crazy people? What, what, what is this going to do for me? And, and those are fine questions in and of themselves, but they are a bad place to start. Because all of the scripture from beginning to end has one central and main character, and that is God and God alone. Now, there are many supporting characters, and and that's one of the dangers of of, of entering into this Bible, is that we often get sidetracked by the characters, by by Samuel, by by Eli, by his sons, by, by all of these different other narratives that are happening. And we begin to miss the point that all of this is directing us to understand God. So we should open the Bible, and the first question we should ask, be it, be it Genesis or 1 Samuel chapter 2 or Revelation or any other part of the Bible, what does this tell me about who God is, about his will, about his nature, about his actions, about his being? What do I learn about who God is from this text? And, and once we have laid that grounding, that foundational um, foundation, we can then begin to build the house on top of that, asking questions that are very important, like, how do I parent well? How am I a good uh, uh, spouse? Uh, how do I live in this world rightly? All of those questions can be built on top of that. We enter into very dangerous ground. And let me give you a perfect illustration. When the world looks at us, what do they see? What's their most common critique of the church? Y'all are judgmental. Hypocrites, you might hear those as well. I think I heard that from over here. They look at us and they see a group of rule keepers. Here's right and here's wrong. And, 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 I, and I have to say that, that they're often correct. That, that is what we portray. That is what we talk about. That's what we're focused on as we enter in the scriptures. And so we have created this whole group of people. I don't know if you've heard about them. I've read a, a bunch about them recently. We call that, They're calling them the duns. That is, groups of people, often millennials, but some older people as well, who want to consider themselves Christians or do consider themselves Christians and yet are, are done, as it were, with the church. They look at the church and they say, well, you're all just a bunch of you know, rule keepers. And oftentimes there's a clash of 
have priorities in right and wrong. The culture is pushing one way. The church is pushing another way. And we're more comfortable. We're always more comfortable in our culture, even if it's just church culture, right? We're always more comfortable in our culture. And so there are these groups of people who say, I'm done with church. And I think what you see in both of these, the rule-keeping Christian who's all got it all figured out nice and right, and we've checked all the boxes, and we've got all the righteousness, and the people who say, you know what, I, I don't think you guys have it together at all, and I'm done with you. Both of them, I think, are, are the different faces on the same coin, because both of them have begun at the wrong place. We've begun by asking, what does this teach me about right and wrong, and not how does the scriptures shine forth the glory of God? This is what we see as, an, as a central error in the, in the text that we're going to read today. The, the lives of these men is that their central focus is not the glory of God. We have a name, uh, John Piper has this really co- great quote I like. We have a name for those who try to praise when they have no pleasure in the object. We call them hypocrites. We have a problem And that is when the world looks at us, they see us obsessed with right and wrong. They do not see us obsessed with God. And that's a very fine point, but I think it's very important. What they should see when they look upon us as a people who are are just always honoring, always glorifying, always seeking, always focused upon who God is and what God wants. And we get this here, and I'm going to jump forward, so our, our, our verses are going to begin in verse 12, but I'm going to ruin the story by jumping all the way to the end of it. And I know that's not the best way to tell a story, but it is a way that we can begin to focus in on this central point of what does this tell us about God. In verse 30, this is sort of the second half of verse 30. Underline this in your Bibles if you have brought your Bibles this morning. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. I want you to see that. Those who have put God in the highest place, God will lift them up. Those who have looked God and all we use God for is maybe to interject in our curse words every now and then, uh, God will see you as nothing. Lightly esteemed, you're, you're a vapor. You're, you're, you're nothing to, to God. You're, you're sort of vanishing. And so we see here in this very verse a really key and important doctrine that drives everything else that's going to happen in this story. And that is this, that God will be glorified. God will be honored. We read in Leviticus chapter 10 verse 3, here's another instance of of characters who have misplaced this very central and foundational doctrine, this foundational truth. Moses says to Aaron this word from the Lord. The Lord has said this, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. That is, those who would draw near to God must treat God as as though he is holy, he is pristine, he is other. You would bring nothing obscene before him. You would say nothing obscene about him. You would bring nothing impure before him. He is, he, is, he is wholly other. He will be sanctified by those who would draw near to him. And before everyone, all of the earth, God will be honored. He will be glorified. This word here, um, Jack, uh, is kaved, which is the same word in Hebrew as honor that we read here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. To honor or to glorify, it's the same, it's the same root word. So, What we see here is this doctrine that God is going to be honored no matter what. But what we see here throughout the scriptures is that this is the direction of all human history. 
Everything is heading toward the moment where God receives all of the glory that God is due. Here we see this in Revelation chapter 5, verses thir- verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all of them saying or singing, the word can be translated either way. And I want you to imagine this for a moment. Everything in heaven, so the cherubim, those, those creatures that have eyes inside and outside and wings all over, these crazy different faces of lions and bears and people, oh my, all this craziness. You have the seraphim, which are the burning, literally the word seraphim means to be a burning one, and they have wings all over themselves, and they sort of fly around the throne of God, crying out his praises all day and night. You have the hosts of heaven, that is the army of the angels, or the messengers of God. God has this angelic army, and we sort of get images and pictures of them throughout the Bible, but just an uncountable number, according to different uh, psalms that we read. All of these creatures in heaven, and ones that we don't know about, and then every creature on earth, every living, how many people do we have on earth? A couple trillion? Is it that many? I don't know. Lots of people. All of the people who are living, and all of the people who are dead, so who are under the earth, all of the dead have been raised, all of those who have ever lived are there as well, and now all the animals... In the things in the sea, so the dolphins, the whales, everything that has a voice in one moment will cry out. Imagine the cacophony. Imagine the sound of every creature that has ever existed singing out these words to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the purpose of human history. This is the purpose of all creation, to glorify God. And what did we read from from Samuel there, chapter 30? As we glorify God, God lifts us up and brings us into his glory, that we might share in his honor. And so we come to an immediate application here, and that is, if you are wise this morning, you will hear the call of God to honor him, and you will do it now. You will do it now. As James says, if you humble yourself before God, God will lift you up. But God, what does he do to the proud? He despises the proud. The proud say, I want to be God. I don't want you to be God. And God despises that. This, I think, brings up a very um, important objection. And if you are an avid reader of um, atheist uh, textbooks or books, Uh, as I am, you will have read this or have run into this person, this accusation. Isn't then God insecure? Isn't then God then self-obsessed? If he's he's so concerned that everybody brings him worship and glory and honor and praise, and then he's going to judge you if you don't, what kind of God is that? That's not a God worthy of worship at all. But I hope that you see sort of the foolishness of this, the the man-centered view that, that emerges here, because who should God... Whose glory should God be worried about? Yours? Mine? If God is, as the scriptures declare, and as all all life declares, I would argue, God is all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, knowledgeable of everything. He is the ultimate. He he is the one to which we could ascribe attribute after attribute after attribute. You You could exhaust a whole thesaurus and still never come near even scratching the surface of the greatness and the glory of the living God. Who should he be worried about? Who should he honor? Right? 
He deserves all honor and glory because he is above all other things. And for God to say, no, I want you to honor this thing is for God to create an idol. For him to break his own commandments. In fact, what I want to suggest to you is our problem isn't that God demands honor. It's that we want the honor. It's that we want the attention. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own masters. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. And I, I'm going to point you to uh, Romans. And I know I've done this before, but I feel like this text just so wonderfully encapsulates everything that we see going on here in 1 Samuel. And today, it says this. Um, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, if you have your scriptures here, underline this or make note of this because this is the scariest line you will ever see in the Bible. Therefore, God gave them up. He said, I'm done. You want to go your own way? Go your own way. You want to defile yourself? Defile yourself. Whatever you want to do, go ahead and go ahead and do it. I am done reaching out. I am done calling. I will let you follow your own path. And so where did their path lead them? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Notice that. Once you have taken God off the throne, you are no longer honoring or glorifying God. You put something else in God's place. Immediately, everything else begins to becoming dishonored. We stop honoring God. We begin dishonoring everything else around us. I was listening to NPR, forgive me, <laughs> this week. Um, and uh, I, I'm listening. I don't even remember the radio show, what it, what it was. And I won't describe what they were talking about because we do have some little ears here. But they're talking about um, sexual acts that were not being done within the marriage, uh, the marriage family. And I thought to myself, 10 years ago, like the, is it the FCA what is it? FCC. Would have like fined them into oblivion for just talking about this. And now we're having casual conversations. There is no honor anymore in America for the marriage. There is no honor in America for our bodies. There is no honor in America today for anything. And, and it isn't just America. It's across the world. Because the direction that we will go as soon as we stop honoring God is we dishonor everything else. Everything else becomes despised, corrupted, broken. And don't we just see that played out? The truth of Scripture, because we, instead of worshiping, honoring, and glorifying God, we have rather worshiped, honored, and glorified those things that are created. And because of this, we have destroyed ourselves, our lives, and everything around us. And so it brings us to two very important points That again will drive through this text. First is this. God will be honored. And he will either be honored by you now. Or he will be honored by you before your judgment. God will be honored. He will be glorified. There is no other answer. There is no other conclusion. There is no other outcome for all of creation than this. God will be honored. And so we come to this wonderful thing that is so true of the Christian life. And that is this, your primary purpose before you preach, before you teach, before you start talking to somebody about what is right and what is wrong, they better see in you a deep and abiding love for God. 
They should see in you such an honored life that you are constantly pointing them to the love and salvation and righteousness and holiness of the living God because without that, all they hear is right and wrong, right and wrong, right and wrong, and that's just man's opinion anyway. But if they understand the truth, the power, the glory of the living God who has transformed everything about who you are, then they might catch a glimpse of something worth following, something worth listening to. So the church has to start with the right foundation. With the wrong foundation, we're lost. And lost is what we see here in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. What a great thing to be known about, right? All these, a couple, 3,000-ish years later, we're reading about these worthless men. Don't be known like that. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's, the priest's servant would come, and as the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pot or can, uh, kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Now, think about this for a second. Just get this in your mind. They didn't have paychecks back then. No 401ks, no, you know, like, tithely apps. There's none of that stuff. And so the priest is not sowing seed and, and, and raising cattle, so how is he going to eat? He eats from some of the sacrifice that's offered, and the rest of the sacrifice that's offered, the meat is taken, and all the people together eat as a feast. Like this is, every time you read about sacrifice, I think sometimes we think that means like, everybody's like, oh man, this is, this is such a terrible time. You know? No, they are feasting. The meat has been roasted. God has been pleased. Let's eat, right? And this is what's going on here. And so, so the priest, this is how they would pay the priest. But what happens in verse 15? Before the fat is burned, before the sacrifice is taken through, before it's all completed, the priest's servant would come, that's, that's these, these wicked, these worthless men, and he would say to them, the, 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 the um, servant would say, give, me, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat, but only raw. Right? The priest's servant comes in and says, listen, give it to me now. He wants to slice it up and put on a pizza. He doesn't want it, right? He doesn't want it boiled. And if the man said, well, let me, let me burn the fat first. Let me complete the sacrifice. Then you can take as much as you wish. He would say, no, give it to me now. If not, I will take it by force. And so the sin of these young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This is the first story of preacher's kids. First PKs right here. And PKs are famous, hopefully this is not going to be true of Emory, but PKs are famous for knowing all the verses of the Bible and where to find drugs. Like this is just kind of, this is just what, what, what they're known for. These men are, are, are worthless men, it says. But I want you to underline this, this, this thing right here, the second part of verse 12, because it says what? They did not know the Lord. These men knew a lot of things. They knew the Bible verses. They knew how to, to live out the Bible verses. They knew all of the ins and outs of sacrifice. They, they would have been instructed and known how to teach. In fact, they would, have been, they would have been about teaching. That's exactly what they would have been doing as priests, doing the sacrifices, doing the teaching. And yet, we read here, they didn't know the Lord at all. Because knowing God is to participate in the righteousness and the life of God. It isn't to have head knowledge, but it is to have experiential, practical knowledge, putting it forth. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, uh, as he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, There are many people who say, Lord, Lord, 
Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do great works in your name? And Jesus doesn't deny that. They say, listen, I was in church every Sunday. I knew every Bible verse. I taught Sunday school. I mean, I was an elder. I did everything that I was supposed to do. And Jesus says what? I didn't know you. I didn't know you. Because you're, did not, you did not practice what you preached, to put it in like the colloquialism. They were men of lawlessness. So to know God is to obey God. To be a part of God's life is to put it into practice. Let me give you an illustration. If you wanted to get huge like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you could read his book. And he would tell you his workout and his, uh, his, his, his diet and, and all of these sorts of things. But unless you do it, you don't know what it's like to be him. We could say this in terms of building things. Um, you could talk about sports, anything like that. We understand this experientially in our, in our lives that unless you are doing it, you aren't really a part of that world. This is but a shadow of the great and glorious truth. There's an awesome verse uh, that I really like. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And it says this, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image. I want you to notice that. What does this mean? This means that God will be honored. He will be glorified. All the earth will sing his praises one day. But it says that right now, God wants to take that glory. If you would offer your praise and honor and glory, you made him the first in your life. God wants to take that glory and he wants to impute it to you. He wants to share it with you. So much so that you are transformed. That people look at you and they say, there is something different about this person. Remember when Moses stood before God and he just saw the little glimmer of God's glory. His face was so changed that he shined like the sun and they made him put a veil over his face. You know Jesus. He has taken his Holy Spirit and he has placed it within you to fill you with righteousness and holiness and truth and he has set you into a world and he says here he wants to transform you from one degree of glory to another. That's incredible. That's incredible. The God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, this God wants to share his glory with you as you glorify him and stand before him. Therefore, we are called to honor God. What is the crime of these young men? They did not honor God. They didn't care about right or wrong. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They didn't care about right or wrong. Why didn't they care about right or wrong? Because they didn't have a strong understanding of the glory and honor that was due God's name. Look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of the evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord. And it's spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of God to put them to death. Now there's a lot of things that we need to tackle there, but keeping with our theme, the problem that exists here is that Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons, 
They do not honor God. But I want you to underline and notice verse 22, especially if you are the spiritual head of your house, and whether you're a single mom or, or you're uh, maybe the only believer in your house, who, whoever you, wherever you are as the spiritual head of your house, pay attention to verse 22. Because what does it say there? He was old, and he finally gets around to rebuking his sons. It's not like Hophni and Phinehas were like suddenly like, like they hit a midlife crisis and all of a sudden we're going to start misbehaving. Now, this has been a lifetime of abusing the privilege that they've been given as priests. And what comes along? Finally, he gets around to rebuking them. He's made excuses for them. He said, "There's well, you know, maybe it'll be... And we do this, don't we? We make excuses for our children... Well, you know, boys will be boys. No, they won't. Discipline them. Discipline them. We do this in our own lives. Well, you know, I was just, I was grumpy. I, I you know, I, you know, I, I was, it was tired. I'm, you know, it, we make all of these excuses for ourselves. No, stop it. Stop making excuses for yourself. Discipline yourself. If you don't discipline yourself, then God will discipline you. And if God doesn't discipline you, that means he's giving you up. And you ought to drop right now on your knees and plead with him. If you do that here, I won't bother you. Go ahead and do it. You need it. God's discipline is the only way that you know that God is still working in your life. If you are able to sin without conviction, if you're able to sin as these men, Hophni and Phinehas, that means that God's giving you up. And you better repent right now if you want him back in your life. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be because God will be glorified. He will be honored in all the earth. Uh, uh, He makes a small mistake here. Uh, Eli makes a small mistake. He brings up a great point. He says, you know, if you you offend a a human being, somebody else uh, can intercede for you. But if you offend a God, who can intercede for you? There's a great Jesus sermon right there, but I'm running short of time. But just ponder that for some, some time this afternoon because that is a great good news because you have offended God and you need someone to intercede for you. Put that aside. Where was I? Right. So, um, but his mistake is this, is to say, is to think that not all of our sin offends God because everything you do, every sin you commit is against God. There's a verse here, um, Colossians chapter 1, this is verses uh, 16 and 20. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. We're talking about thrones or dominions or, or powers or authorities, things that are better and bigger than all of us here in this room today. All of those things were created through him. And I love that line right there. Do you see it? For him. So God has taken all things, Jesus has taken all things, and, and he has created them. They were created through his power, and they were created to offer him glory. That is the reason things exist. But there is a brokenness between these things. There is shattering because of sin, and so we have this line here. And so what has Jesus done? He has sought to reconcile, that is to bring all things to himself, whether we're talking about things in heaven or things on earth. And so what has he done? He's made peace through his blood on the cross. So whether or not you are abusing your body, whether or not you're committing secret sinful acts that no one ever knows about, or whether you're bringing gossip and false accusations and anger and racism or whatever, violence, whatever you might be bringing out to others around you, every sin that you do breaks this great promise. 
this great act and work of God. So we all need the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. Every sin that we commit is transgressing it, which is why God is reaching out in Jesus Christ to bring about the transformation of all things. This is why God's glory is so powerful and wonderful. Did you hear that good news? We are broken and in need of transformation because we in and of ourselves are so used to following the passions of our flesh that we have no ability to come to God and to offer him the glory that is due his name because remember, what is the truth? The truth is that God will receive honor. God will receive all of his glory, all of the glory due his name. And we are called, our purpose is to share in that glory. I want you to hear that because it's not just you're there offering praises to God and that's the end of it, which is what God could do, right? Right? But instead, what has God done? He has said, you have shattered everything that I have made. You have broken it all. You have cast it aside. You haven't listened to my ways or my laws or my word or my will. You've put all of it asunder. And yet I still want you to share in my glory. The glory that should only belong to God. God says, I want to share it and impart it to you so that with unfailed faces, you might be transformed. You might be transfigured. You might be reshaped and reformed and brought from one form of glory to another form of glory, none of which you deserve. That's immense and powerful and the foundational truth of all of scripture. And without that, with, when we miss that, what we represent is a pale and shabby comparison of rules and regulations which will only interest people who, who want rules and regulations. I don't know who they are, but I'm sure they're out there somewhere. But the whole world hungers to know its purpose and its truth. That purpose is to offer glory and honor to God so that God can transform you and bring you to his holy self. If this morning you don't know God, if this morning you are purposeless, if this morning you have a long list of rules and regulations and you know that you failed them time and time again, and the only possible way for a holy God, a glorified God, a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-beautiful, all-righteous, to come and draw near to you is for you to come and fall on your knees before him. Scripture says this, all nations, all the nations that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. And they shall glorify, they shall honor your name. For you are great, and you do wondrous things, and you alone are God. So teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth, and unite my heart to fear your name. Then I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will honor your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. If you're a Christian here today, that's your song. 
that you get to sing with all of creation. If you're not a Christian here today, this is the song that God wants to place in your heart. And we invite you to come forward to confess your faith in him and to receive baptism for the forgiveness of your sins and to walk in the newness of life. If you need prayer this morning, if there's brokenness in your life and you just need somebody to talk to, to pray with, we'll have elders down front. We are here and we'll stay here as long as it takes to help you work through and to pray through whatever it is that's going on in your life. Don't let this day go by without committing your heart to those songs that we sing. They're fearsome. I surrender all. I surrender all. Don't let today go by without surrendering all to God to letting him teach you his ways, to fear his name, to glorify his name so you might experience his steadfast love. Let's stand as well as we sing.